Praise God for that. Thanks, Josiah, for, for sharing. Um, yeah, both Josiah, Pastor Daniel, uh, just wonderful, wonderful uh, servants of the Lord and so dearly loved by, by God. Um, please do, um, as you, you know, as we finish up our worship service, go and say hello to them and give them a hug and encourage them. Um, I'm not sure what, Josiah, what, um, what cartoon were you watching April 17th? Do you remember? Looney Tunes, okay. I, I watched some cartoons growing up, but by, uh, easily my favorite cartoon growing up was Popeye the Sailor Man. Does anyone, anyone remember watching Popeye? Okay. Anyone love it as much as I did? Like, you love Popeye? So Popeye is, uh, basically, it's a, a very simple cartoon, and every episode is the same. It's about this, like, geeky, nerdy, um, goofy guy named Popeye who uh, loved this girl named Olive. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Uh, that's not me. Maybe you think it is. But um, Popeye had this nemesis named Bluto, who was this big, strong, hulking, massive guy with a beard who also loved Olive. I was thinking that's more like me. But <laughs> Popeye and Bluto both loved olive oil. Uh, Popeye maybe loved her more, but Bluto would always like stand up to him, and he, couldn't, uh, he could never get olive oil. That's always the way that the, the storyline went until... At some point in the cartoon, probably about two-thirds of the way uh, after the last commercial break, uh, Popeye, the song would come on. It would say, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man, I'm strong to the finish because I eat me spinach, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. And then he would grab this can of spinach, which came from, I don't know where it came from, um, because if he had it with him, then he should have used it all the time. But he grabs this can of spinach, he squeezes it open, the pop, top, top flies off, and then uh, the spinach flies into his mouth like this, like that, right? And he gets all strong, and then he starts hulking out on Bluto, and he hits him into like next week and into a different country, and then he wins his bride olive oil, and it's like this great thing. And, and even though it's so predictable, every time I was like, yeah, go Popeye, probably because I knew that that could be my life story. I could win a beautiful girl named Olive also. But that's just kind of the way it happened. As I got older, I realized Popeye was really good. It was fun, but it was really a dirty ploy by a bunch of parents to get together to teach children to eat spinach. (laughs) And so the other day on Wednesday night, one of our sisters in here was, served, was at church, and she was carrying this. And I said, oh, my gosh, I would love to use that for my sermon on Sunday. This is Popeye-approved, super good spinach superfood. Right? This is amazing. Big old Popeye here. He's named Popeye because he got into a fight, and his eye popped out Popeye. So this is him. Um, Popeye spinach. This is amazing, right? I thought to myself, how awesome would it be if really like Popeye in real life Anytime I was like getting beat up or Josiah was getting bullied by people in, in a foreign country that we could just rip open this bag and eat it and then we get like super strong. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be totally cool. Uh, I don't think such a thing exists in this life. We, um, I, I, I do think that steroids are the closest thing to it, but they're not legal. But don't you wish that there was something like that for our spiritual lives? Right? A spiritual spinach that whenever you feel weak or you feel like the enemy is beating you up and you're just laid out, mandatory eight count, you can't get up, don't you wish that there was something that you could just rip open and eat and then all of a sudden the temptations that you have faced and have given into, you were able to overcome them? 
Or that thing that God told you to do at, after our, our, our worship service last week uh, that you feel like, oh, I don't think I can do it. I'm afraid. Uh, I lack the courage to do it. That there was a spinach that we could eat that would actually give us a spiritual fortitude so that we could do that. Don't you wish that there was something like that in our lives at a spiritual level? The Bible tells us that whenever we encourage somebody this is what we're doing. We are literally taking courage and pouring it into somebody who needs it. Because haven't there been times in your house churches, you've been listening to people share, and, and they're crying, and they say that they're at the end of their rope. They say they, they have doubts, they've got fears, they don't know what to do. Don't you wish that there was something that you could do? Don't you wish that there was a bag of spinach that you could open up and just start pouring it into them so that they could find the courage and find the hope that they need in order to be strong to the finish? The Bible says unequivocally that you and I can be people like that, that we can be spinach pourers by the way that we encourage people. And the one person that we've looked at who did it the best, far better than anybody else in Scripture, is a man named Joseph. In fact, he did it so well that people stopped calling him Joseph. They didn't call him Joe. They didn't call him Josie. They didn't call him Jose. They called him something completely different. They said, you know what? You are a real courage pourer, so we're going to call you the courage pourer, the son of encouragement. We're going to call you Barnabas. And my proposal last week and my proposal throughout the, 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 the last few years that uh, if you've heard me talk about Barnabas is that Barnabas to me is the most important person in the New Testament outside of Jesus and Mary because if it wasn't for Barnabas, the Apostle Paul would have never gotten his opportunity to become the greatest missionary that the world has known. If it wasn't for Barnabas pouring strength into him, Barnabas putting his neck on the line for Paul, he would have never become the globe-trotting, world-changing, the greatest missionary church planter that the world has ever known. And as we look into the way that Barnabas poured courage into the lives of other people, I want to encourage us to begin to dream and to think and to wonder, could God still do that today? Could he still do that through somebody like me? Could God still do that in our church? What would happen if we really began to believe that God could do that and we took a step of faith? Last week, we looked at Acts 4. I want to look at Acts chapter 11 today. Acts chapter 11, we're going to read verses 19 through 26. This is one of the most pivotal turning points in the history of the church and in the history of the world. This is where Christianity goes from being just a religion amongst a, a, a specific ethnic group to just blowing up and reaching the world even the people like you and me. Acts chapter 11, we saw last week that Joseph poured courage into the lives of others through a radical generosity that was willing to take his stuff and look first at the needs of other people before he looked at the things that he wanted. And if we want to be an encourager, a courage pourer, the most important person in our church, in our world, then we need to start looking at the needs of others and have a radar up to that rather than simply wanting to care for our own needs. Again, I'm not saying don't care for your own needs. You've got to do that. Uh, don't care for your own wants. You've got to do that. But if you really want to be the kind of person that changes a world, then we have to go beyond our selfish desires and to begin to see how we can meet the needs of those around us. Today, 
Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. We're going to look at the second time uh, we see Barnabas really pouring courage into somebody. This is God's word. Now, those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This is God's word. I don't know if you caught this, but uh, three times it says great numbers of people, right? So all these people are coming to know the Lord. What's going on here? It begins with those being scattered in persecution in connection with, with Stephen. So about 10 years earlier, uh, the people of God, right? people like us, uh, were only Jews at the time. They're living in Jerusalem, and this persecution broke out. So people who didn't like uh, these Christ followers, Jesus followers. So they would get killed. They would get hurt. They would get picked on. They would lose jobs. They would be imprisoned. Um, all kinds of things would happen to them as a way of showing, we don't like you because you're a Christian, kind of like what our brother Josiah shared. So that's happening. And as a result, in Jerusalem, the Christians start scattering, right? This was how, you know, this was part of God's plan. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, uh, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? So it starts in Jerusalem, but the persecution drives them out. And so here they go. They're going to places like Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon. It goes to Cyprus, where Barnabas was from, and it goes to Antioch. Okay. Antioch was the capital of Syria at the time, modern-day Turkey. Goes to Syria, and, and, and people are going to these places, but by and large, they're just talking to other ethnically Jewish people. Ethnically Jewish people, people who are scattered, like Barnabas, to different islands because of um, persecution or they were invaded. So they're just going looking for Jewish people and talking to them. But it says a few people actually went to non-Jewish people. And uh, these are called Gentiles or Greek people. And they start telling them about Jesus for the first time. Like there was one family named Cornelius, uh, a Roman centurion, and he gave his life to the Lord. But these people didn't know about it because they were on the run. So for the first time in mass, people start telling non-Jewish people about Jesus. And, and it says, as a result, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It's crazy. These Gentile people, non-Jewish people, are believing in Jesus Messiah. And they're saying, we want to follow him. Now, it says in verse 22, news of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, for all they know, okay, Christianity is just for Jewish people. Right? It's just for us. Nobody else. Now, all of a sudden, they're hearing that Gentiles are believing in Jesus also. So Jews and Gentiles, for thousands of years of human history, have been the worst enemies. Right? Jews did not associate with Gentiles. Gentiles did not like the Jews. 
But all of a sudden, the church in Jerusalem is hearing, hey, you know what? The, our enemies are starting to hear about Je- and Jesus, and they're believing in him, and they're following him. This is crazy. And so they're wondering, oh, my gosh, is this like the real deal? Because if this is the real deal, this is a game changer. Because then anyone can come into the kingdom. Anyone, not just Jews. But if it's not real, then, guys, we got to do something about it. So we got to send someone. We got to send someone to check it out and to deal with this in a way that is the best way possible. And so they send the best man they've got. It says they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And from this point on, we see this massive, this is a hinge point in human history where Christianity would begin its march to the ends of the earth, begins taking over the Roman Empire. So what was it? And I know that it was the work of the Holy Spirit. It was the work of many different things and many different people. But the way the Bible describes it, it says there is a massive, earth-shattering, world-changing role that this unassuming man named Joseph has to play in all of this. What is it? Three thoughts I want to talk to you about as we look into what happens here and in the verses to follow. Uh, Three things. Here's the first thing. Courage pourers, okay? Courage pourers rejoice when they see God at work. They rejoice when they see God at work. Verse 23, when he arrived and saw the evidence that the grace of God, he was glad. Literally says he rejoiced. Now, what's happening? What did he see? We're not altogether sure what he saw, but there's a couple different pictures that I can imagine he could have seen. The first thing, so Antioch is the third largest city in the big old Roman Empire. Okay? There was uh, Rome, there was uh, Alexandria, and then there was Antioch. So if you could imagine it today, uh, maybe you can picture it as these are like the L.A., the New York, and the Chicago of our time. Massive city, massive city. So it's a massive city. Uh, In those massive cities, uh, those cities are known for a couple things, three things that I want to point out. The first thing that Antioch was known for was its business. You wanted to do well in business, and everybody would go there. It was a massive trade hub, and so people are constantly going through Antioch. And if you wanted to do business in different cities... Antioch was a great place to be. It was also a great place for sports and athletic events. If you've ever seen the movie Ben-Hur, the chariot races, that took place in Antioch. So it was famed for its sports. But it was also, as many big cities were, uh, it was the home to rampant immorality. It was almost like the Las Vegas, the sin city of the empire. This is Antioch. There uh, There was a saying that said it was Antioch that corrupted Rome. That all of the immorality, all of the sensuality, all of those things that ran roughshod in Rome started in Antioch. And Antioch was the ones who brought it there. That's the city in which these guys start preaching to non-Jewish people. And as you would, as God would have it, people started believing in the Lord. They started turning to Jesus. Now, you go to a place like that, one of two things that you might see. I remember going to the Dominican Republic on a mission trip, uh, maybe one of our early years there. And the missionary there told us that when he got there, you know, this is the Dominican Republic uh, was um, a developing nation, a developing island at the time. And so a lot of the families that the missionary was ministering to uh, were not well off. So at the age of 11, 12, these young boys and girls would start hitting puberty, and without a lot of things to do to entertain themselves, they just start hooking up with each other. So the average age of pregnancy in the Dominican Republic, I think, was 14 years old at that time. 
Okay, 14, average age. I remember going to visit this one home. There was a lady who lived there with eight children born to five different men, and none of these kids knew who their dad was, never had any relationship with their dad. So into that kind of a culture where 80% of pregnancies in that country were 17 years of age and younger. So he comes and he starts teaching, a, he plants a, a church in the middle of Santo Domingo and the church starts, the gospel starts going forth. And he said the hardest thing for these young people was to try to figure out that dialectic between this is the way I was raised, this is what I saw my parents, this is what I saw my grandparents, this is the way it's been for generation after generation as it relates to how we relate to the opposite gender. And then this biblical ethic that says it honors the Lord God when we keep our purity, save our purity, give our virginity only to one we've been pledged in holy matrimony to. He said, this was such a hard thing for people as they're uh, walking through their discipleship. All of my friends are telling me to do this, but Jesus is telling me to do this. And it took a long time. It took a long time for that transition to happen. And I can imagine that in a city like Antioch, that was that filled with immorality, that that transition for the gospel to begin to penetrate into the hearts and the lives of people, that it transforms the very ethic and the fabric of the way that they live. I can imagine that took time. And maybe that's what Barnabas saw. He saw people struggling to make it and to follow Christ in the midst of a world that was telling them to go the opposite way. Or maybe it was completely different. Maybe he got there and he saw complete transformation in the lives of people in Antioch. These people who, once, who were once uh, selling their bodies to, 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 to earthly pleasures are now pledging themselves to, to purity and chastity and devoting themselves to live a life of holiness. Maybe he saw people who are struggling with, with, uh, with materialism, giving all of that up in order to follow Jesus and to give freely uh, to people who are in need. I don't know what he saw, but you can imagine that it was probably somewhere in between this spectrum, maybe one of these two, but it says that when he saw the evidence of God, whether it was great or small, it says he was glad and he encouraged them to remain faithful and true to the Lord God. And whatever it is he saw, he highlighted the work of God in their midst and he said, keep following Jesus, keep doing it because it's worth it for you to follow him. Maybe if it was someone else, and they saw Antioch, the people of Antioch, struggling to try and figure it out. They've got the gospel in one hand and they've got Antioch in the other hand. And they're trying to figure out how do I reconcile these two, the, the new life of heaven with the old life of Antioch. Maybe if someone else came, they would look at that and say, you know what? It's not real. It's not genuine. They don't really believe in Jesus. He's not really the Lord of their lives. They got one foot in the church and one foot in the world. It's not real. And they could have gone back to Jerusalem and said, no, you know, we got to put an end to this movement. Or maybe they came and they saw evidence, true evidence of the grace of God and these revivals are breaking forth and, and, and maybe it was such that some of them got jealous of that. You know how sometimes we can be like that. It's kind of weird, right? When, when we see someone start growing or someone starts, their house just starts, starts, starts blowing up or, or, or people are, are, are changing under their leadership, it's sometimes a, a weird way of being tempted where we start discounting those things or being jealous of those things. When we want to be growing at a, at a rate that, that we want to be and we're not and it's slow going, but we see somebody else and, and God's working in their lives and they're growing like crazy. Their prayers are being answered. Their prayer life is taken off. They're being elevated to positions of, of leadership. We look at that sometimes and we begin to get jealous 
Because we think if, if God's blessing them, then why am I not being blessed in that way? And if their house church is multiplying, then why is mine not? And if people are coming to know the Lord and in that, that context, why are they not in mine? And, and why are they getting the glory and holding the waters of baptism when I'm the one who, who prayed all these years and invited them to church and they never came out? There's a way that, that this, this strange tendency that we have to want to discount the work of God in the life of someone. But that's not what Barnabas did. It says, Barnabas, when he saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. There was a, literally in other places, it says, he rejoiced with a great joy when he saw the work of God in their lives. In other words, it's his attitude that whenever I see the work of God, I want to highlight that. I don't want to look at the negatives. I'm not going to focus on the negatives. I'm going to look at what God is doing, and I'm going to pour courage into that so that that tiny ember could be fanned into a massive flame. And that was Barnabas' attitude. I want to do that. And he poured joy into the hearts of other people. What does that look like? When you see the work of God, when you hear that Barnabas was glad, that he rejoiced greatly, this is kind of, this is how I, what I envision Barnabas to have done. I, I think that his attitude affected his actions. His attitude affected the way that he lived. But it began inside of his heart. I, I think if, if we could try to make this practical, and I, I don't know that this is necessarily what Barnabas did, but I would imagine that if he was here, this is what he would have done. Practically, two things to show your rejoicing, your gladness, your joy at the work of God. One thing, when you see somebody in whom God is working, you see someone in whom there's a tiny evidence of God's work in their life. Maybe they're at church, and that's evidence of God. Maybe they're coming out, or maybe they're actually changing. Whatever it might be, the first thing that you can do to pour courage into that person is you could smile at them. <laughs> okay, I know, this is cheesy. Oh, yeah, smile at them. What's that going to do? But did you know, do you know how powerful that might be? Because think about, think about it in, in this sense. Um, you and I will either, to every person that we meet, we will either pour courage into their lives or we will drain them of courage. Okay. Oh, but it's just a smile. Think about what, it, what, what, think about what happens when you come to church. You're excited because God's been working in your life. Okay, God's been working in your life. You're so excited. And you walk into a, a group of people and nobody's smiling. You're like, hey, it's a great day. Today's going to be the best day ever. We're going to worship God. Let's go get him. And they just look at you with this blank, like nothing. Does that pour courage into your heart? Like, yeah, I want to worship God. I want to, today's going to be the best worship of my life. Because you see, when you take it the opposite way, you begin to realize, yeah, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm not pouring courage into people's lives the way that I want to or the way that I think. But what happens when you begin to smile at someone? <laughs> okay, let's try this. Can you look at the person next to you, and can you smile at them? So all of a sudden, okay, all of a sudden, things begin to change. Did you know that smiling is infectious? Right? You can catch it like the flu. Someone smiled at me, and I started smiling too. Someone came around the corner, and they saw my grin, and then I realized that I caused and brought a smile in him. 
You know, when you begin to smile, not, this is not only for, if you, if, you, if you look up the health benefits of smiling for your own heart, and insurance companies will tell you to smile more because it elevates your mood, it builds your immunity, it leads to better relationships, it leads to better health. There's all kinds of benefits. But when you begin to smile at other people, you begin to pour courage into their hearts. So think about, again, the difference between when you come to house church and you're, you walk in the door of someone's house and you say hello, and they're just like not smiling, looking at their phone. They don't even look up at you. They look up at you. They look back down. No smile. How inviting is that? Oh, I love being in a place like that. No. But they look at you and they smile, even if you've had a, cr- especially if you've had a crummy day. Like, you know what? It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to put my heart out there today. Smile. (laughs) It's huge. I would imagine that Barnabas had that kind of a posture. It says he was glad. He rejoiced at the work of God. I don't think he was like, hmm, yeah, God's doing an awesome work here. Keep it up. Ah, he was, there was this attitude of rejoicing greatly within him at the work of God, and it caused him to pour into the lives of other people. The second thing that you can do, in Psalm 122, verse 1, David writes, he says the same words. He says, I rejoiced when they said to me. In in other places, it says, I was glad, very glad when they said to me what? Uh, Let's go to the house of the Lord. The other thing that you can do in a very practical way, right, to show your gladness, your rejoicing at the work of God, is you can come gladly to the house of God. Come gladly to the house of God. Not like your hair's all crazy, like you just woke up and, and you're, you're angry to be there because somebody dragged you, your, your wife or your husband made you come, and you're all like bitter and, oh my gosh, I don't want to be here. That's discouraging. <laughs> but when you come eager and you come expectant and you come ready, think about what, again, think about the difference. Think about the difference, okay? Think about the difference when you know, okay, in my heart, I'm, God is working in me. I'm excited. I'm ready to worship God. So I'm going to come at 1025 because I know that to come early means I'm actually on time. And if I'm on time, then I'm late. And if I'm late, then I'm really, really late. So I'm going to come early so that I can be on time. So here you are. You come early at 1025, 1020, 10 o'clock, whatever to pray. You're here early and you're so excited to worship. And you come and to the worship of God, you're waiting. The countdown is going on. Five, four. Some of y'all don't even know there's a countdown before service starts because you've never seen it. But there's a countdown that starts before worship service starts. Five. You're counting down in your mind. Four, three, two one and you're excited the presider comes up and says let's greet one another you're excited to greet the fellow brothers and sisters the family of God with whom you're going to worship and you look around and there's only six people does that excite you to worship yeah it should it shouldn't matter I'm going to worship God whether there's six or six thousand that's cool I understand that but think about it from your perspective if you are there part of the 200 that are here on time how that pours courage into other people's hearts to say, you know what, I'm ready, I'm eager, I'm enthusiastic, I'm excited. I'm going to get what God has for me today, and I'm going to give everything I have to him. Imagine how that can pour courage into the hearts of other people. When you're here, and they know that you're early, not because you got to make food, not because somebody dropped you off early because they had to go to the airport, <laughs> but because you're here because you want to be here. That pours courage into the hearts of other people, and it causes them to say, you know what, I'm going to give my all unto God. That's what it means. Well, it's not only what it means, but these are two practical outworkings that anybody can do. You don't have to be smart to smile. You don't have to be smart to come on time. 
You don't have to be rich to smile or to come on time. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to go to seminary to do all these things. But these are things that Barnabas does. A Barnabas does. A courage poor does in order to pour life and courage into the hearts of other people. Man, that it would be that next week we would come at, at 1025, 1015, all of us would be here, smiling, ready to go, praying it up, ready. There would be an explosion of the presence of God in this place in a way that we haven't seen. Can we do that together? Yes. All right, Chian and I will be here early, <laughs> and we'll be here. Anyone else? I'm, yeah, you don't have to say it, but let that be our attitude. I want to be a courage pourer. I don't want to be a courage drainer from other people. I want to pour courage into the lives of others. That's the first thing. He was glad. He rejoiced when he saw the work of God. Second thing that we see, this is what courage pourers do, at least we see in here. Second thing is that courage pourers know that we can only give what we have. Okay, we can't give what we don't have. I'm not telling you, hey, um, if you, you're not typically a smiler, you're, you know, you just, you're, you're very unemotional, you're kind of stoic. I'm not telling you, hey, just, just fake it all the time. I know, I know you're going through like severe depression and, 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 and you, you're, you know, you got a lot of issues in your life, so just, but just, just smile anyways. I'm not telling you to fake it. <laughs> I'm not saying fake, fake it until you actually feel it. I'm not saying that because you know that's not going to last long. But what I am saying is that if there's something on the inside, it will show on the outside, right? Whatever's on the inside is going to show up on the outside. I feel like, man, there are so many times in my life that I, I just wish I could take like spiritual spinach, right? And just, these people are not smiling. These people came late. I just want to go and I just want to run around and shove this down your throat. Get courageous. Get encouragement. Oh, let's do it. Let's run the race for Christ together. And, and, and I feel like some of us want to do that. Like we just wish we had this and we could just be pouring it out and, and singing the Popeye song in everybody's hearts. But you realize you can't because instead of this, a lot of us are like this. A lot of us are like, hey, come here, come here, come here. Oh, never mind. <laughs> I had none to give to you. Do you feel like this? Because here's our reality. You can only give to other people what you've got in your own heart. Much as you want to be, man, I want to be a courage boy. I want to be a world changer. I want to breathe dreams in the lives of people. If your heart is empty, you ain't got none to give, and you ain't got none to give. Look at Barnabas. Look at what it says. Why did they send Barnabas? It says, verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Literally, it says, he was full of goodness. He was irresistibly filled with beauty on the inside and goodness that caused that to spill over to the outside. Right? He was teeming with goodness in his own heart. And so when you push a sponge filled with goodness, then goodness will squirt out at you. You squeeze a sponge filled with nothing, nothing will come back at you. He's filled with goodness. Not only that, it says Full of the Holy Spirit, okay, full of the Holy Spirit, right? Luke is writing this, right? The Dr. Luke, he traveled with Joseph, traveled with Barnabas on many a mission trip, saw the, and you see someone's true nature on a mission trip, 
You see their maturity level. You see their immaturity. You see their willingness, ability to be flexible and go with the flow. You see their rigidity. You see all of these things play out. You see how they respond when their buttons are pushed. You see how they respond when they're tired. You see how they respond when they didn't sleep because their roommate was snoring at night. You see all of these things on a mission trip. And this wasn't a one-week mission trip that Luke and Joseph are going on together. This is many, 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 many days, weeks, months, long periods of time. And his conclusion as he writes this was that, man, this man is filled with the Holy Spirit. There is fruit. There's, I see love coming out of him, joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I see all of these things flowing out of him. And it says he's full of faith. Man, whenever he's put to the test, whenever a trial squeezes on on this man, Joseph, faith pops out. He's full of those things. And because he's full of those things, he's able to give those things to other people. How do you know? How do you know what's inside of you? How do you know if you've got these things inside of you? There's several different ways to tell. One is uh, trials will definitely bring these things to the surface. But Jesus says, here's, here's one of the best ways for you to know. He says, it's out of the overflow of your heart that your mouth speaks. Okay? Out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. Here's how you know what's inside of you, whether you've got the goodness of God, the spirit of God, the courage of God, the strength of God in you. Look at the words that have come out of your mouth. Do you complain a lot? I'm just keeping it real, though, DL. I'm just keeping it real. That's cool. You can keep it real and not always be complaining, right? Give thanks in all circumstances. Do you complain all the time? Oh, you know what? My, my mom and dad, they're like this. You know what? My teacher's like this. Dang, that, that class that I'm taking, a teacher is so unfair. You know what? Our church is so this. You know what? Oh, it's so hot in here. The weather is terrible. I, can't, I hate living in Florida. Do you complain all the time? You complain all the time. It's not a mouth issue. It's a heart issue. It's not potty mouth. It's potty (laughs) potty heart. Not party. (laughs) Because our hearts are revealed in our words. Do Do you like to talk about people a lot? You like to talk about people because it makes you feel good that you know them? like to talk about people, and, and it's not always in a good way. Oh, you know what? That person, someone really, needs to, someone really needs to fix them. Oh, man, you know what? These people, they did it again. Hey, but, you know, don't tell anyone. The reason I'm telling you this is, yeah, we really got to pray for them. That's cool. Maybe it is, but can I say something? Before you say something to someone else, why don't you pray for them before you do that? and keep on praying for them, and then when you absolutely must tell somebody, then you can tell somebody. But talk to God first. It's, see, talking to people about people is one thing. Talking to people about God is better, but talking to God about people is the best. Talking to pe- about people to people is one thing. Talking to people about God is better, but talking to God about people is best. Are you the kind of person... Someone asks how you're doing, even though it's hard, you're like, you know what? I'm still, I'm still thankful. I'm thankful that I got a job to complain about. I'm thankful that I got a family to complain about. 
I'm thankful that I got money to lose in the first place. I'm thankful that I got a home to be foreclosed. Well, I mean, you got to be really full of faith to talk like that. But if that's how you talk, then check it out. You can be one of the greatest courage pourers that the world knows because your heart is revealed in your words. Begin to speak words of life into other people. It's the second thing that we see. Last thing that we see, last thing that we see is that courage pourers find joy in the success of others as much as they do in their own success. Okay. They find as much joy in the success of others as they do in their own success. So here, great numbers of people, great numbers of people. Two times it says great numbers of people are coming to know the Lord in Antioch. One before Barnabas gets there, another time after Barnabas starts teaching these people. Great numbers of people are coming. This is Barnabas' moment to shine. He could forever go down in history as the leader of the first non-Jewish church in Antioch. Barnabas could forever be immortalized. He could have said, this is, this is my gig. Turn on the spotlight. Shine it on me because I'm about to preach a sermon and all these people are going to come to know the Lord because the hand of God is on us. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? As the church starts getting bigger, 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 it says in verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So if you've been reading through the book of Acts, you haven't heard from Saul in about seven chapters since we last, uh, since, or, or two chapters since we saw him in Acts chapter 9, but it's been about 10 years now. Because when Barnabas brings Saul to the Jewish council, uh, the church council, they're like, oh my gosh, we're scared. He used to kill people. He used to kill us. He's faking it. He's a mole. He's just trying to get in so he could kill all of us. But Barnabas is like, no, 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 no. I believe in what God is doing in him. So then he gets inroads into the church. But after a while, he starts like bringing about, uh, stirring up trouble because people still don't believe. And so they say, hey, you're going to get killed. Just go, go to Tarsus. Go back home. <laughs> so Saul goes back home to Tarsus. So for the past 10 years or so, he's just been chilling in Tarsus, telling people there about Jesus. He's Saul. He's not Paul. He's not Apostle Paul. He's not Missionary Paul. He's not Missionary Journey Paul. He's not Church Planter Paul. He's not Change the World Paul. He's just Saul. He's just Saul in Tarsus. And as the church in Antioch begins blowing up, Barnabas has always had in his mind this young dude named Saul who's been He's just been kind of chilling in Tarsus, plying his trade, and he remembers this guy has a heart and he's got a passion for Gentiles to come to know Jesus. And he said, this is his moment. This is the moment in history where everything could change. He says, I better call Saul. He goes to Tarsus and he gets Saul and he brings him. What's Saul been doing for 10 years besides preaching? He's been doing all that stuff that we read about. Galatians says he's been telling people in Tarsus about Jesus, um, but this is where he's learning everything that we read about in Philippians 3. Whatever I considered profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything again compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. He's learning all of that in Tarsus so that when Barnabas calls him, he's like, all right, let's go. Barnabas says, Saul, I need you, man, and, and, and the church needs you, and, and, and this is your time. And so from this point forward throughout the book of Acts, these two men start wreaking havoc on the kingdom of darkness, pushing back the gates of hell. And every time you see Barnabas, Saul is there with him. So look, verse, verse 26, 
So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. Verse 30, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. If you flip to the end of that chapter, verse uh, 25, when Barnabas and Saul had finished, chapter 13, verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 13, verse 7, the proconsul, intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul. On and on and on. In verse, uh, it, it goes like that. Barnabas and Saul, because these two men realized, man, we need each other for the mission of God to get accomplished. I can't do this alone, said Paul. I can't do this alone, said Barnabas. We need each other. And every time you see them, they're ministering together. It's Barnabas and it's Saul. And it's interesting because in biblical literature, the person whose name is listed first is the person who's in charge. It's the person who's the boss. It's the person whose name will Remember, it's like Abercrombie and Fitch. Fitch gets ditched, and it's just, let's go to Abercrombie. It's like Barnes and Noble. Poor Noble, hey, let's go to Barnes. Where are you at? I'm studying at Barnes. What about Noble? Poor Noble, because Barnes, his name came first. Abercrombie's name came first. But in the biblical times, it was because they were more important. Saul, I'm sorry, Barnabas and Saul. When you read the list of, in Mark and Luke, when they talk about the disciples, it always begins Peter. James, John, and at the end, it's Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. Okay, these are the important people, and these are the lesser people. So here you've got Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, and they start ministering, and they start ministering, and they start ministering, and if you're an astute reader of the book of Acts, you begin to realize that at a certain point, starting in chapter 13, verse 42, there's a shift that happens. Chapter 13, verse 42, it says, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving. The next verse, verse 43, they followed Paul and Barnabas. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas answered them. Verse 50, uh, verse 50, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. Chapter 14, verse 1, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas. Chapter 14, verse 3, so Paul and Barnabas, on and on and on and on it goes. And from this point forward through the rest of the book of Acts, it's Paul and Barnabas. Because Barnabas says, you know what? I could do this, but I can lead this mission up until a certain point in time. But now, Paul, it's your time. It's your time. It's your time to be the front man of this movement, pointing to the glory of Jesus. I've done what I could do, but the best I can do now is I'm going to stand behind you, and I'm going to put courage into you so that you could be everything that you were put on this planet to do. You go and you be the greatest missionary that the world has ever known, and I will be fighting until my dying day so that you could reach your destiny in Christ. He said, I'm willing to step back into the shadows so that you could take your spot in the light so that you can point people to the greatness of Christ. But you go do your thing. You preacher to the Gentiles. You go plant these churches. You go start these things, and you set this world on fire for Jesus, and I'll be behind you fanning the flames in order that you could be all that you were made to be what it means to pour courage into somebody. It's to value their successes as more important than your own. Can you do that? Not just for your kids, but can you do that for someone else's kids? Not just for your church, but can you do that for someone else's church? Not just for the future of someone else, but we said this a couple weeks back, your greatest gift, your greatest co contribution to the kingdom of God may not be that gift you gave last week as you heard about the generosity of Barnabas. It may not be about anything you ever do. Your greatest gift to the kingdom could be somebody that you pour into because you have no idea that the next apostle Paul could be sitting next to you right now. 
The next apostle Paul could be sitting in your house church ready to change this world for the glory of God. The next apostle Paul could be sitting in your sixth grade Sunday school class waiting for someone to give them a dream so that their heart could catch on fire so they could say, send me loose into this world because I'm going to wreak havoc on the kingdom of darkness. I'm going to be a hell raiser shaking the gates of hell so that people could come to know Jesus. Holy cow, there are no limits to what God can do, not just through your life in your actions, but through your life as you begin to pour courage into the lives of other people. The next world-changing, globe-trotting, history-making, water-walking, wall-breaking, giant-slaying man of God, woman of God could be right here. There's no reason why he or she can't be. You may have already met them, may already know them, but are you willing to take that step of faith to say, I will find my greatest joy, not in my own success, but in the success of someone who comes after me or someone who comes beside me or someone who's running alongside of me to breathe that dream into them. In a 2000, right before the 2000 Sydney Olympics, there was an Olympic trials, Olympic trials where you, you compete to see who's going to represent America to go to the Olympics. And there are these two girls, a Korean girl named Esther, and I, I was reminded that I, I, I shared this before, but um, I'm going to say it again. A Korean girl named Esther Kim and her best friend, a girl named Kay. And both of them, from the time they're five and eight years old, their dream was to represent their country in the Olympics for Taekwondo. Uh, there was no Olympic Taekwondo events. I don't think that were given out, uh, giving out medals. I think it was an exhibition for, for many, many years. But Sydney was one of the first years that they actually were giving out uh, medals. It became a competitive sport. Uh, but they trained under Esther's dad. So Esther's dad would uh, train them. Best friends, they grew up 10 years later, still best friends, still competing each other, pushing each other, challenging each other. And now it was the U.S. Olympic trials in, I think it was in Houston, either they're from Houston or they're in Houston for the trials. And one person in their weight class is going to go to the Olympics. So Esther, pew, 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 she like does Haruken and makes it to the finals. And so she's in the final and she's waiting to see who she's going to, you know, I don't know, fight against or spar against or whatever, compete against. And uh, the semifinals is her best friend, Kay. And her best friend's arch nemesis, a girl named Holly or Molly, I forget her name. Sorry, these, I'm getting all the details mixed up. But it really happened. So she's sparring against her in the semifinal. The winner is going to fight against Esther, and the winner of that will go to the Olympics. Only one person goes. And so here's like Kay, and she's like, you know, sparring with this person in semifinals, and then she dislocates her kneecap. Have you ever dislocated your kneecap? Right? You have, right? <laughs> that was not pretty. His kneecap, Pastor Daniel kneecap was in his thigh. I was like, bro, that don't look right. <laughs> People were like, walk it off, walk it off. I was like, nah, I don't think he walked that off. <laughs> so I don't know how bad Kay's kneecap was dislocated, but she ended up winning, maybe because the other girl was like, dude, your kneecap is in your thigh, and then she like kicked her, did like, <laughs> I don't know what she did, but she won. So Kay wins with a dislocated kneecap and goes to the finals against her best friend, Esther. So here they are, their dads are there, they're all excited, like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Kay says, I can fight. It's like, it's like, the, it's like the, the pinnacle of hubris. She's on crutches. It's like, I can still fight. I can still fight. It's kind of funny, but she got dislocated. I can still fight you. And Esther's like, you can't fight. This is bad. 
So pause for a second here. I, I shared this in our Alpha service, and then we had two girls. One of them is a black belt. She's really good at Taekwondo. Her dad is, a, is, the, is the master of, like, the big Taekwondo place, and she's sitting with her best friend next to her, and her best friend has some knee problems. So as they're hearing this, they came up to me afterwards. I was like, would you do this? So two girls, right, Kay and Esther, are about to spar each other, and Kay's like, I can do it, I can do it. And Esther's like, you can't do it. Listen, even if I beat you, I'm going to feel so bad. Like just, that's not going to happen. So she's like, ah, I can do it, I can do it. So she helps Kay out onto the mat, and then as soon as the match starts, Esther, the healthy girl, forfeits the match in order that her Olympic dream would die on the mat at the trials so that her friend's dream, which had died the day before, could find life. So I asked this girl, Chinju, I said, would you do that for Joy? She's like, heck no, not for the Olympics. <laughs> She's growing. She will. Maybe in a couple years she will. <laughs> Kay's dad said, um, that's the gutsiest thing I've ever seen in my life. And even though she doesn't have a gold medal around her neck, she's the true champion. They interviewed Esther afterwards. They interviewed all these people, but they interviewed Esther. And she said, for the first time in my life, even though I don't have the medal, for the first time, I actually feel like a champion. Feel like a champion. Because she considered the success and the dream of her friend to be more worthy, a goal, a dream to fight for than her own. And I think we're moved by that. The reason it made news is because that's the spirit and the heartbeat of Barnabas. That's what we long to be. We don't want to, when I hear that story, I don't want to be dislocated knee girl. I want to be the girl that gave to her so that she could become great. That's who I want to be in the story. I don't want people interviewing me, hey, what did it feel like for you to do that? I want to be the one, hey, what did it feel like for you to give yourself so that she could become awesome? And it moves us because we know that that's in us, that any one of us can do that. Any one of us can do that. Because that same word, the son of encouragement in Greek, the son of the paraclete, it's the same word that Jesus used when he talks about the Holy Spirit, when it says he's full of the Spirit. The reason Barnabas was the paraclete, son of the paraclete, was because the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, was living inside of him. The reason we need courage is because we have fear, because we're afraid. First John tells us it's perfect love that drives out fear. The reason why you and I can have courage poured out of us is because God has poured courage into us. Because you see, when we were fearful and we needed it the most, God emptied the heavens of its greatest treasure and gave his only son, Jesus, to come into our world to show us what perfect love was. That in order to pour courage into our lives, he lived the perfect life, pouring courage into Samaritan women, into broken people, into dead people, into people who are blind, people who are lame, pouring courage into them. And on the last day of his life, he gave the ultimate act, showing perfect love, that fear would be driven out so that courage would be poured into us. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven so that the promised paraclete could fill your life and my life in order that we might expend our lives to pour courage into other people. What happened as a result of that? 
Saul move from the shadows to the forefront so that he could become the world-changing missionary that the world was desperately waiting for and dying to see arise. There's no limits to what God can do through your life when you begin to pour yourself into the lives of other people. Maybe that's your, that's your son or daughter. Maybe that's your parents who need it. Maybe it's a friend, a school teacher, a person at work. You begin to pour courage in it. Maybe someone in your, in your ministry context. You're going to pour into them. Man, can you imagine what it'll be like when we sing that sweet song of the second chair, letting someone else's success and joy cause our joy to become greatest, even greater than if it was us in that place of success. Let's be courage pourers because the spirit, the paraclete, lives in us. Let's pray together. I'm going to invite our praise team to quickly come. I'm going to just pray for us. But let's half a minute, Lord, fill me, fill me, fill me. Fill me with you so that I might pour courage into others. Give me a selfless spirit in order that I might be able to give myself to others. Can we pray just a minute right now? Half a minute, just praying honestly, sincerely. Ask the Lord God that he would do this for his glory. Father in heaven, um, man, this room has blow-up potential in terms of what we can do for your kingdom. If we would realize that for every Saul, every Paul, there needs a Barnabas. That we wouldn't just try to run off being our Paul, or that we wouldn't just try to sit back in the corners doing nothing. Man, what would it look like if these Paul and Barnabas relationships could be birthed and born in us? What you could do through our lives in that way. So help us. Pour out the spirit of courage into our hearts so that we might pour courage into the lives of others. Not so that a Paul might be raised up, but so that we could simply honor you. And as we do, Lord, would you be pleased to raise up many, many people who would count all things lost compared to knowing you and making you known. Thank you so much. We love you. We need you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.